welcome to another episode of Eclectic Intellection. Today's episode addresses the question of the present. What is the present? Can the present be defined? How is the present connected to the past and the future? And uh, more fundamentally, to what extent do answers to these questions shape the narratives and stories that organize our lives, our societies, and our views on the context in which we live? My guest today is Michael North, who is a professor in the Department of English at uh, UCLA. We are going to discuss his 2018 book, which is titled, What is the Present?, and uh, which was published by Princeton uh, University Press. So, uh, Michael North, uh, welcome to the podcast. Um, Let me ask you the question with which I usually begin. Um, Could you tell us a little bit about your academic background? Well, basically, uh, I'm a scholar of Anglophone modernism which means that I started out working on people like Ezra Pound and T.S. Eliot. Um, But when I started working on them, this was at the beginning of, I guess you'd call it the cultural studies movement. And the the general trend at that time was to try to situate those writers more in the general cultural milieu of their time. I mean, the previous notion about them had been that they were sort of isolated elitists and didn't care about culture outside of high literature at all. And of course, that's not true. But in the 80s and 90s, we spent a lot of time sort of demonstrating that. But what that meant was that it was possible to actually write about a lot of other things other than literature. So film and photography, popular culture, I wrote about comics. Uh, I've written a book about comedy, branched out into history of science and philosophy. So in the course of sort of expanding the purview of modernist studies, I guess, I've ended up writing about an awful lot of different things. Now, this specific book is on on this uh, problem of the present, how to define the present, what is the present. Uh, so how did that project stem from the rest of the project? So, so what is the connection? How did you decide to write about this? Well, I mean, I came to it through a, a kind of a long process. Actually, I had written a book about novelty. That book started out by I was investigating Ezra Pound's famous slogan, Make It New. And I was a little bit peeved by the way that got misinterpreted and misused. And so I started out in this sort of cranky way just to try to clarify the terms under which Pound used this slogan. But then it occurred to me that what was really important was to try to figure out what it meant to be new. And so that's what I did. I wrote a book about novelty. And instead of just worrying about what Pound meant about it, uh, I actually tried to figure out what it actually means to be new. And so then the next step after that was to start thinking about the present. And I was kind of pushed along a little bit by uh, an exhibition that was put on at the Hammer Museum here in L.A., the slogan of which was New Art Now. And uh, I thought of that as a great kind of compact slogan for the contemporary. But it also made me think that, you know, novelty and the now are, you know, very closely associated with one another. And uh, the next logical step for me after working on novelty would be to do something about the present. 
So you, you've addressed uh, sort of my, my next question to some degree already, but so what do you see um, as being at stake here in the discussion about the present and the problem of the present? Well, I mean, let me start with an example. Uh, recently, people have noticed that, that novelists have started writing novels in the present tense. Uh, so, for example, the Hilary Mantel novels about uh, Thomas Cromwell are written in the present tense, which is interesting for an historical novel. And this has become such a common habit that there was actually a little bit of a controversy about it, both in the UK and, and over here, in which people actually objected to writers writing novels in the present, as if there was something really sort of wrong with it. And in the beginning, this was a kind of a you know formal objection, saying really novelists should use all the time senses, they should use the past, present, and the future, and not just be isolated into the present. But it very quickly turned into a kind of an ethical and even a, a moral argument where novelists were kind of you know, shirking their responsibility. And if they didn't you know, sort of observe this past, present, future kind of timeline, that they were really avoiding cause and effect. And by avoiding cause and effect, they were, they were doing something almost immoral. And you can sort of see that that, that objection seems very strange to me worked into a general feeling about the present in contemporary society, which is that, you know, people right now are too focused on the now and they don't pay enough attention to the to the past or the future. And uh, this is a very normative argument that gets trotted out actually quite a bit. And uh, it seems to me that, you know, what's at stake here is a lot of really very basic uh, structures, not just in society, but in also philosophy and psychology. Uh, psychologists often tend to assume, or philosophers do as well, that the self is based on some kind of natural progression from the past through the present into the future. And there's a lot of, a lot of normative arguments um, about this in a lot of different disciplines. And so, and, and two, you'd also say like the opposition to these normative arguments also has to do with the present. So if you look at, say, for example, uh, the, uh, the career of Derrida, I mean, Derrida really starts off as a, as a critic of phenomenology, but the aspect of phenomenology that he really kind of zeroes in on at the beginning is what phenomenology says about the present. Uh, to assume that the present is a unified thing is for Derrida to make a very basic mistake about experience. And from there, a whole lot of what he thinks goes wrong in phenomenology comes, comes from that. So on both sides of a kind of major cultural argument about a lot of different aspects of contemporary you know, thought and life, you know, the, the present turns out to have a pretty important role. Okay, uh, let's move on to the argument. Um, I'd like to read two quotes that I found uh, interesting. Uh, the first one is on page eight, and uh, here you address the scientific view on the present. Uh, you wrote uh, the following here. The scientific evidence suggests, then, that the present is not a physical or physiological datum, uh, to which our explanations and descriptions will become progressively more adequate as our investigations progress, but rather that it is a convention imposed on a physical and physiological reality that is far more fluid. So this is uh, the first quote. Uh, then on page 10, you wrote about physics. Uh, here's the quote. Uh, 
But if modern physics is correct, there is no real now in objective reality. And if current neural science is on the right track, then there may not be any reason to believe in a subjective present. Thus, the very arguments that are meant to resolve these issues may keep them in play by offering new and more elaborate metaphors for something that is itself already a metaphor. <laughs> so these are uh, very interesting quotes. Uh, does the present even exist? Uh, that seems to be the question here. Uh, in light of these two quotes, uh, could we segue and uh, talk about your overarching argument about the present in the book? Um, so how would you summarize uh, that overarching argument? Well, uh, yeah, I guess it, it begins with the kinds of statements that you've already pulled out of it. And I, don't, I think the first uh, of those is, is not really particularly controversial. Uh, I guess if you follow on in the, the paragraph after that statement on page eight, uh, I go right to Kant. And it is just the case that you know, philosophers from Kant to Bergson have basically said that our apprehension of time is necessarily metaphorical, that there isn't really any way for human beings to apprehend time in any direct sense, and all our ways of talking about it are basically metaphorical. So that's, that's essentially when I, I say that I use the term convention there on page eight. Later on, I think I tend to use the term metaphor, but you know, whatever. Uh, I think it is pretty much accepted that we, we don't have a direct grasp on time in general, much less the present, in any but a metaphorical way. And the, you know, the, the evidence there from physics and from physiology is really basically used to, to just sort of chip away at the notion that there is some sort of thing, you know, like the present that's an actual datum of experience uh, or a physical reality that, that we could get at. Now, of course, that's, you know, in, in one sense, you might say, if you go, you know, to Newtonian time, well, there certainly is a, a sense in a philosopher like Locke, that there is a, a now, and there's, there's one of them, and it, and it synchronizes, you know, every, everything in the universe in time. And that's obviously one of the major things that Einstein exploded. And there, for, for Einstein, there is, there is no now. Uh, there isn't any one single point in time that is invariant throughout the universe. Uh, it depends on your, your point of view. Uh, the physiological argument, I think, is, is, is similar. Uh, for a long time, uh, what people looked for in physiological investigations was the agency by which all our different sense data were brought together on a single point. So, you know, obviously we know from the beginning of time that we, we see things, we hear things, you know, we smell, we have different senses. And there's a, a question from the beginning, how does that all come together, you know, so that we see and, and hear all at the same time? Uh, for Aristotle, of course, that was the common sense. You know, there was a kind of clearinghouse in the mind that brought all that together in a single place and on a single instant. Uh, for Descartes, it was the pineal gland. You know, it played the same role as as the common sense. But you know, contemporary physiologists had figured out that there there isn't any such agency. There isn't any little homunculus in there that's gathering all of this stuff together and and superimposing it on a on a single point. You know, but in fact, that the different sense data 
they come to us by different pathways, you know, at, at different rates. They come into different places. And that there's a really kind of quite variable sort of envelope of experience that doesn't have any particular size or shape or duration and may, may change, you know, in duration, you know, from, from instant to instant. So there, there isn't any, in other words, a, a, an actual scientific warrant for our, our, our notions that uh, the present is a is a particular fact that if we knew more about it we could finally you know sort of nail it down and this this connects with the earlier part of my argument you know when I was talking about those normative metaphors uh, those normative feelings about the present that it should be such or so that it should be connected to the past in such a way or the future in such a way um, but if we if we know really that the, the present is just a metaphor, well, then it's no longer necessary. Not to say that it's not useful and not to say that it's not maybe for a lot of people fundamental, but it's not necessary for everybody. And there might be other metaphors by which we could understand what we think of as the present. I mean, we might keep the present around as a concept, but we might have other metaphorical versions of it that we could draw on that would uh, be different from the ones that a lot of disciplines seem to assume are necessary and, and unavoidable. So, so it's not a point on the line. It, it's much more pliable and malleable and, and flexible as, as a thing. Uh, well, this, I mean, this, yeah. The, the first, the first thing you you realize that it, is that it can't be a point on a line. I mean, that's the most logical way to think of it in the abstract. But the problem with thinking of it as a non-dimensional point is that you can't have any experience inside a non-dimensional point. So to, if the present were in fact, if the present had no time in it, as it were, then there would be no time to experience anything. I mean, Aristotle was the first one to say this, that, that nothing could happen and we couldn't experience anything. And so this is the source of all of those old, you know, Zeno's paradoxes, you know, the arrow that's, you know, in, in, in stasis at every point along the line and therefore can never make it to the end. You know, that's one of the reasons why those paradoxes sort of work is because of the notion of a, of a line with discrete uh, non-dimensional points all along it. The, the, pro the problem with that is that it's been a very durable notion so that even for someone like William James, for example, you know, who had this uh, a much, you know, as a psychologist, had a different notion of the experiential present. He thought of it as something that was really maybe a few seconds long or even a couple of minutes long. He still believed that the real present was actually still that non-dimensional point in the center of, of the larger experiential present. And that contradiction between those two types of the present tended to really hamstring um, you know, his attempts to figure out what, what the present was actually like. And, and you also point out um, in the introduction that the book uh, represents a sort of extended answer to Michel Foucault, right, who asked right. Um, this question, what is this now which we all inhabit? and which defines the moment in which I'm writing, right? That's so, so yeah. the book is a kind of answer to Foucault. Now, maybe um, if, if we could explore this by looking at uh, some specific examples. So to, to go back to the Greeks, you have a fascinating discussion here on this idea of kairos and mm -hmm. chronos, right? right. So, so could you maybe explain again how you, how you understand these two concepts? What is kairos and what is chronos? Well... This, I guess the brief way of saying it is that the difference between quantitative and qualitative time, uh, between 
quantifying time and trying to appreciate it in a qualitative sense. So the, the, the book, it takes actually quite a long time to develop the etymology of kairos. But basically, you know, a kairotic moment would, would be the right moment. It's a moment of decision or a moment of change. Uh, it has a very, very important role in the New Testament as a, as a, a moment of uh, conversion. I mean, St. Paul's conversion is one of the basic sort of kairotic moments in, in world history. And as uh, particularly in the 19th century from Kierkegaard on, there was a, a way of opposing the instant to the to the chirotic moment. So that there, it, and it wasn't really just in terms of, of their their dimensionality, where, I mean, the instant has no dimensionality. The kairos, the, that chirotic moment, it, it's dimensional, it has some extent. But really, what's important about the chirotic moment is that it's unique. So the instant, of course, comes along every instant. I mean, there's zillions of them, and, and they're, they're, they're constantly replacing one another. But the chirotic moment is unique. There's just one. It's the turning point, and everything depends on it, and you need to seize it. And you can kind of see there a really uh, what I think of as it's an ancient view of time, but became very popular in the modern period as people became you know, dissatisfied with clock time. Uh, they realized that rationalization of time was sort of robbing their experience of a lot of its meaning. There's kind of a reaction against quantification in all sorts of ways. And so then the, the Kairos then becomes a kind of alternate present for a lot of philosophers. Heidegger would be a great example. You know, it's a kind of alternate version of the present where it's just unique and full of meaning and, and dimensional. And in fact, it has all of eternity in it because everything changes in that moment. And that means then that all of eternity is compacted into this into this one little moment. So, so there's something sort of sublime about the Kairos that is not there in the Kronos, right? The Kronos is the sort of atomized, uniform, homogeneous uh, uh, thing, whereas Kairos... Um, again, elevates one, you know, it's on a different plane. There's a sense of vertical connection, right? That yeah. the horizontal chronos uh, does not have. But, but so here I wanted to ask you one element that kind of puzzled me a little bit. I mean, is it is it not possible for a moment to be both at the same time? Can the two meet? Can can chronos and, and the kairos coincide? Well, I, I don't think so. I mean, on the one hand, it's, it, it is true that if you look at the way these are described, uh, a lot of the descriptive terms are very similar. One of, the, one of the reasons they can't coincide, though, is that the kairos is really conceived of specifically as an alternative to the instant. It's the exception. It's the, it's the, it's the difference. So you can't have a, a kairos that has any of the real fundamental characteristics of the instant because it, it's the opposite, it's the alternative to those. And, and it only comes really maybe once uh, in a lifetime, which is the kind of drawback, it seems to me, to the whole idea. I mean, in fact, even the Kairos is almost has no real meaning or shape except as an alternative to the instant. And in that sense, since they're mutually exclusive, it's, it's difficult to superimpose them on top of one another. On that front, um, I'd like to read another quote uh, from the book where you summarize the difference between the ancient and modern uh, views on the Kairos. Um, this is on pages uh, 38 and uh, 39 
um, what you say here is uh, the following. The chirotic moment is the time to make the right choice, to be right, at least in part by rejecting what is wrong. Unfortunately, over time, the classic norm that had attached to Kairos, the avoidance of extremes, had not only leached out of it, but had gradually turned into its opposite. Originally, Kairos had stood for a full and complete integration into society as it existed. Uh, proper observance of it meant uh, submission to the conservative notion that what is, is right. For Kierkegaard, for Heidegger, for the Romantics, for many modern artists and writers, what is, is wrong. And the function of the exceptional moment is to call us to another standard. But that standard, by its very nature, has no actuality and thus no content. In modern times, the kairos is normativity without a norm. It is pure, unadulterated longing for a moral standard without particulars. If the classic kairos meant submission to what is, the modern version means submission to what might be. Whatever fullness may lie beyond the emptiness of the present. Uh, so there's a lot in this quote. Um, you're addressing this immersion, this submersion, uh, uh, or a kind of sublime experience uh, that the Kairos uh, represents. And uh, you point out that the ancient and uh, modern models of this Kairotic moment uh, differ in uh, significant ways. Uh, the Greek Kairos uh, points to a type of um, reintegration. It's restorative. Uh, it's about the establishment of a type of harmony uh, within something that is familiar. In other words, uh, this ancient kairos is a type of circle where one returns to a state of stability. In contrast, the modern kairos contains a kind of projection away from the familiar. Uh, the integration is projected into the future. Uh, the circle is broken, uh, so to speak, and there's a jump into the unfamiliar, a kind of huge emptiness. Um, so there are all kinds of ideas about what that new integrated world is supposed to look like, but perhaps one of its defining characteristics is that it's a, diff it's a different kind of world. It represents a kind of break. So uh, these ways of uh, framing an experience that takes place in the present uh, in fact, point to very different outcomes. Um, could you say a few more words about uh, this shift um, that the Kairos uh, causes and how the idea of the present uh, fits uh, within that shift? Yeah, well, see, the, the, the beginning here is just the original etymological meaning of kairos, which is a, a kind of balance. I mean, originally, it, it had a very physical meaning and had to do with, with armor and things like that. But, but, but as it developed, it, it was a kind of, there was a kind of a balance there. And, and particularly, it meant, you know, sort of balancing between, between extremes, the middle, the middle way. 
Um, and it did have, I think, a socially integrative function where you were supposed to find, you know, the exact point between the extreme on one side and the extreme on the other side. And, you know, that was supposed to sort of, of reconcile you to things. Um, whereas, yeah, in the, in the modern period, you know, from, from I guess I, my discussion of this really sort of starts with Kierkegaard, what, what's on the other side of the chirotic conversion is, is purposely left open. I mean, I think in almost all of this, in, in the same way so that Marx really even says we don't actually know what the actual communist society would look like. You know, or Heidegger says, you know, we don't know what the future is. It's, it's being open to that not knowing that's the important thing. So there really isn't any, uh, since, since what's being conceived of here is just the exception uh, to everything that is, it doesn't have any actual content or, or any shape. But, but at the same time, it does have a really very strongly normative sense to it. It's still, you know, the moment of, of decision or conversion is a moment at which you need to make the right choice. What you need to do to be right here is just to sort of leap into a future that you don't really actually know anything about. So it's, it's a, that's why I call it a kind of a normativity without a norm, uh, because it's, it's just there's a, a longing here, I think, for something that is as solid and as useful and as authoritative as, you know, let's say Christianity or, or a pre-Christian body of belief in, for the Greeks, but that has to be conceived of somehow beyond uh, everything that now currently exists. Okay, so I mean, you you mentioned Marx, so that's actually what I was going to ask you next. So if we think about these endpoints, the sort of Marxist utopia as it's projected is again this sort of amorphous, uh, very vague, content empty. How would that intersect with what you're saying here about the Kairos? Well, I mean, obviously there there are differences, um, but there there might be a similarity here, and one of the things that I think unifies all of these sort of chirotic theories, if you want to call them that, is an emphasis on the sudden uh, and the total and the violent as in contradistinction to, uh, you know, kind of present, which is based on the instant, you know, where instants are repetitive and, and similar, you know, so, so there, you know, you get a kind of, of ordinary duration, you get repetitiveness, you get sameness. So the alternative here is kind of instantaneous, total, and, and often violent change. Uh, there's, a, there's a couple of references to Marx in the book, but really I think the reference in this chapter is more to Benjamin you know, and to the Benjaminian notion of, you know, sort of this sort of apocalyptic openness, you know, the break in which everything is totally altered, but w which we don't really know, you know, what lies, what lies on the other side. Um, so there's, there is something a little, I mean, I actually even managed to bring in Jameson here to give a critic from the left, you know, who does say that there's something kind of scary about, you know, the violence uh, the potential violence of the total change that's imagined by by this kind of theory. Well, the other the other question I had was to compare this to the Hegelian final point. For for Hegel, I mean, it's a little bit different, right? You kind of get to the final point, and then it's it's a very solid final point, and you're in the present, and that is the final point. Yeah, I mean, I guess there's a difference then, you know, between. Um, I guess the teleology of the Hegelian system tends to get kind of taken out of this. 
Um, I mean, for a lot of Marxist versions, and obviously that teleology would still exist, and there would still be a you know a solid point that you would get to, and I guess a notion in which history would conclude, which history would be would be finished. Uh, and I'm not going to say a whole lot about you know the Marxist implications of this because it would get into Marx in a way that I don't ever do. I certainly don't do it in the book. But it is often said about a, you know a, a putative Marxist future that we don't really know what it's going to look like because we don't have any prototypes really to work with. All we have is the current system. And in that sense, though, we might actually you know end up at an actual ending point. We might not know what it is. So that, maybe maybe that's the difference in between what I'm talking about and, and mm. sort of the alien system. Which Theology can be foreseen. Let's maybe just spend a few more moments and on someone that you do talk about thoroughly in the book, uh, Husserl, right? And this idea of mm-hmm. the rough now. And I'm, so I pronounce it. What's your favorite? How do you pronounce it? I always say Husserl. Yeah. So you, you talk about him uh, here, page 57. I've taken some notes here. Um, so, so could you maybe just summarize um, what this this rough now meant for him and also the, this uh, metaphor of, of the comet's tail. How does that fit into the discussion about the present? Well, what, what Lucero's trying to figure out, it's the same thing as you know William James, there's a lot, of, a lot of overlap here. He's trying to figure out you know, how, I mean, what we've been talking about up until now is sort of more or less the question of, of how long is the present. Uh, the other question always is, how is it connected to the past and the future? And the problem, of course, is is that if you, you sort of imagine that we're just living in the present uh, and all we see is the present, if you sort of even think about ordinary experience, then concentrating on the present is, is a little counterintuitive. Because let's say if you just move your arm, you just move your arm in an, in an arc, you know, you tend to see that as a fluid motion all at once, you tend to see it all together. Of course, if you, but if you think of the present in any kind of you know fairly instantaneous way, that smooth arc must be part of it in the past and part of it in the present and part of it in the future. And so, how is it that you know time is divided up into these three fairly discrete sectors, and yet we see things that take up time in a fairly fluid and unified way? Uh, so, I mean, it's really kind of you know akin to the basic problem about movies. You know, here we have all these still pictures, and yet we see movement. Uh, that's actually not as understood as well as people think it is. So, so what Husserl is working on then is is you know t- how how do we see fluid movements uh, as as units, even though we know that that the beginning of any movement must already be in the past by the time we get to the end of that movement. So the, the comet's tail is a really useful metaphor for him because um, it's, a, it's a physical thing that we can see. You know, we, you see, we see the comet and we, we, see, we know that a comet has a tail. When we see something like a, I mean, we don't see comets this way in actuality, but we do see meteorites in this way. What you see, you know, is a streak. It's a streak of light. Um, so in essence, you never see the point source that you're looking at, what you see is a kind of a is a kind of a line, really, and and that's an odd thing because what you are in a sense actually seeing is the past at the tail end of the line, the present somewhere in the middle of the line, the future. Because you can't say you're seeing the future, but Husserl even tried to say that you could do that. 
But the, mm. in other words, the the physical fact of an optical after image turned out to be a very powerful prototype for a lot of people uh, about how time must work in the mind generally. So that there are these nakkonga, these these traces uh, of of the past, these repetitive traces. So. Uh, and James thought James thought in the same way. You would see something, and and it would lay down a kind of a trace in a way in your mind. Mm. So, then, so yeah, go ahead. Uh, now I was going to say on a more human level, it would be like a smudge, maybe like making you know on, yeah. on a piece of paper, right? Right. Or or another powerful way that people often uh, think about this is is what this, what's called persistence of vision. This is the one explanation for the way movies work, is that movies actually work by integrating after images left on the retina. Uh, that actually isn't the way movies work, and, and in fact, that explanation makes no sense whatsoever. But it's very popular because it's easy for us to visualize and easy for us to think about. And so Husserl uses the comet's tail in the same way. He's kind of saying, okay, what happens then is that we, we see something and or hear something and a little bit of it kind of echoes around in our head. And then the next moment comes along and we're, the echoes from the past are superimposed on that. And that's how we see these fluid movements is this constant superposition of these echoes on top of what's happening in the present. Yeah, and uh, there are there are some issues with that, right? On on page fifty eight, um, you have an interesting sentence here that kind of summarizes the critique. You say one common practical objection to Husserl's account of retention is that having connected the immediate past so securely to the present, it then needs some way to redistinguish them so that the running off, quote unquote can be apprehended as running off. <laughs> yeah. Well, right? so in, in other words, why don't we just see stasis? Why, is, why isn't yeah. there just a mush of stuff? Yeah. Right. Yeah. Right. Go ahead. But, but, but so, and, and, and even uh, uh, kind of to zoom out, a, a bigger problem that seems persistent here and chronic is that there is no way out of the metaphor, really. Right. Uh, it, it's a smudge. It's it's the comet's tail. Uh, there there are other ways of of thinking about this. But but the scientific and the artistic. I mean, it it, it seems that none of these disciplines have uh, been able to go beyond the metaphor. Right. Well, no, I don't think there there really is any any way beyond metaphors, and I think a lot of when I when I read back over these parts of the book, I mean, my, my, the clear implication of what I'm saying here is that these folks are wrong, um, but that's not meant to imply that there is some right version that they should have come up with instead. Really, the way I would like to leave it is that you know what they're offering us are metaphors. These metaphors have been used very powerfully as if they were actual and therefore inescapable and necessary. But there are other metaphors and that what we should be looking at is really like how the metaphors work and what their effects are. 
and what the consequences would be of using different metaphors, and certainly what the consequences would be of not assuming that some of our old metaphors are absolutely necessary, and that therefore it's somehow morally wrong for us to act in contradiction to them. We're going to run out of time very quickly here. Uh, so let me let me bring another uh, element in here that you talk about. Uh, there's also the, this idea of power and how power can actually shape the way we think about the present. Um, So you mentioned that, you know, our ideas about the present are um, a reflection of of something that was imposed in uh, specific social contexts. So so again, that's that's a slightly different, so that's a sort of bottom-up approach to how uh, historically societies have thought about time. So what's, I mean, how would you summarize sort of the, the main point there? Is it that Again, the present is this malleable thing that people have, you know, defined differently over time. Well, yeah, I mean, actually, I think what you're referring to is a lot of what goes on in the third chapter of this book, you know, where um, I just wanted to sort of go over the what you might call the history of the present um, and to point out that, you know, for a lot of really most of the past, uh, people didn't have any sense of a unified present and they didn't really particularly need it. Um, and that there were a lot of different time schemes around and that time, you know, could very easily move at different paces for different people. It didn't, wasn't bothersome or difficult. Uh, that the question that, that all was really necessary for people to kind of get along was sort of maybe basic concepts of before and after and not necessarily concepts of past, present and future. But that gradually as societies become more unified, it then becomes necessary to have a common time form of some kind, and that then the present then uh, sort of does become imposed um, as a as an authoritative uh, synchronization on on everybody. Everybody has to be synchronized. And uh, but the but a lot of what I'm uh, the sort of research that I'm relying on in that chapter maintains that even now you know, there's still a lot of other time schemes out there by which people live and, and can live, a lot of other versions of the present, and that the imposition of a certain notion of the present on a, on a whole society has always been very variable uh, and incomplete. So so the present is a sort of, uh, it's a sort of social fact, if you will, right, as you call it on page 81. And something very peculiar happens here, and I think a lot of people would, would sort of find that this resonates with them as well. Uh, you talk about how this su- sort of things are simultaneous, right? Everything is happening at the same time now, which which sort of sounds like the the short discussion we just had about the kairos, you know, this idea yeah. of being in the moment and, and kind of uh, experiencing the moment and being in the moment as something sublime uh, demands meaning, right? Mm-hmm. It's a kind of sublime, sorry, I keep on calling it a, you're not calling it a sublime moment, but that, that's sort of the way I see it. It's a kind of deep experience, right? Yeah. Um, so so what, what modernism, modernity, what it does is that it sort of accelerates this movement. We, we feel very much that, you know, if, if, you know, if you go on Twitter, let's say, you really feel like you're there, things are happening at the same time. Uh, if you turn on the TV, right? Um, right. But, but that, that uh, sort of in the present uh, uh, feeling, that sublime sort of feeling, uh, it lacks, it, it doesn't offer the, the meaning that, that one sort of looks for. Yeah. So, so there's a kind of right. problem. It's a sort of defective kairos that occurs.
Yeah, I think that's I think that's right. You, if you go back, there's an argument in the book about calendars, and you know, if you go back to sort of the Greeks uh, or even early Roman times, uh, society didn't really have dates and didn't really necessarily need them. What they had were events, and so they would they would kind of judge historical distance from from particular events. So you had the event first, and then later you had the calendrical date. And I guess my argument about modernity is you sort of have reversed that. So now we have dates, but we don't always have events. Uh, we have a sense of, of, of constant synchronization. I mean, we're all capable now of experiencing the same thing at the same time, um, you know, in a way that really has hardly been possible in the past. But we have that routinely. We have it all the time. It doesn't then necessarily uh, have an event attached to it. It doesn't have any content always. You know, the fact is, is that we're all synchronized inevitably. And we don't necessarily get the meaning out of it that we might have if we were synchronized uniquely. The other thing I wanted to ask you is that the book came about two years ago. So, I mean, has your perspective of, on, on, on the argument changed in any way? Well, um, I, I think maybe not. I don't know if I've had quite enough time. I mean, I, I have, I guess, extended and, and deepened it in various different ways. I've applied it in various different ways. Uh, I, I've been thinking about it mostly in, in recent times in terms of fiction, because that's what I teach a lot. And so I'm really very aware of the, you know, sort of different timelines in a work of fiction and uh, how, how that works. That's what I talk to my classes about most of the time. Even in a classical novel like Jane Eyre, for example, where you know you have one sort of timeline, you know, with the young Jane Eyre in in the plot, but then the narrator is in a totally different timeline and is is observing from the end. So in a sense, the the whole book runs forward from beginning to end, but also you know backwards from the end towards the beginning. You know, as the narrator is kind of coming to understand, you know, what her what her past was all about. I've also been reading more Agamben than I than I did when I worked on the book, and have sort of use that to flesh out some of my ideas about, you know, what an alternate present might look like, one that's not devoted to, you know, a kind of uh, what uh, present in the middle of a past future triad. Mm -hmm. And in terms of reception, um, what has that been like? Well, I, I, I find that difficult to answer. I don't right. actually, I don't read reviews, which is probably a bad policy for a scholar um, and a bad thing to admit. In Comparison to, to the novelty book, which uh, I got a lot of feedback about right away, uh, I can't honestly say I've gotten a lot of feedback about this one. And, and I frankly kind of wonder whether what may be going on here is that the book is a bit too interdisciplinary. I think there's a problem with really interdisciplinary work anyway, in which that, you know, in the ideal state, it appears to a lot of people but in the non-ideal state, it doesn't appear to, any, it doesn't appeal to anybody. So the, the the intersection, you know, of people who care about all of these things might be too small. I don't know. I, I mean, again, I must say that uh, it struck a chord with me because, uh, again, that this podcast, you know, I've, I've named it eclectic intellection. So I, I love this kind of stuff. Um, so so um, yeah, it's definitely wide ranging. Um, so on the last uh, the last two pages, you say a lot of interesting things as well, uh, and one. One thing you mentioned here is this idea of remembering the present. And this is mm -hmm. where I, I thought of meditation, right? The, this oh. idea of trying to focus on the present. Uh, but, but it's also a little bit more complicated than that. You say on, on page 176, you say, the whole of time is always available.
available, always present, and equally present, since we don't have to go through the intervening years to get to any particular point in time, right? So there's this sense of a kind of, I mean, it's just, it's there all the time, right? Yeah. Uh, I was going to say a buffet, but that's a pretty bad (laughs) metaphor. But I, I guess one could maybe think of it that way as well. Right. So, so again, there, there's the sense of, um, right, uh, being in the moment. Uh, and then the very last, uh, I wanted to ask you to comment maybe on the very last sentence on 177. You say, extending the present beyond the end may be a way of suggesting that it is already extensive, as long as we avoid the traditional metaphors that pin it down. Well, what I got, what I was thinking about in the last paragraph there, uh, really was the kind of all. I mean, we have a sense now, and it's not not that hard, of, of real apocalypse. I mean, we really think of ourselves in an, in a you know sort of a what, what maybe pre-apocalyptic moment. Um, and of course, one of the most popular things in popular culture right now is post-apocalyptic narratives and films and things like that. I mean, we really feel like we're coming to the end. And I was coming to the end of this book, and I was kind of thinking, you know, really, what does it mean that a number of the people that I was focusing on, uh, there's there's long discussions of Christopher Nolan in the book, there's a long discussion of David Mitchell, there's a long discussion of this wonderful graphic novel called Here, that these are all kind of very, very, very long-term narratives. They cover thousands and thousands of years, and they're, they're kind of beyond the apocalypse. And I was just sort of thinking about those fictional structures as alternatives to our sense that we are in an apocalyptic moment, that somehow expanding our notions of the present and the way these artists do is also a way of getting ourselves out of the sense that everything is about to be concluded, that there isn't just a gigantic past that's always constantly available, but maybe there is also a gigantic future that's, that's available as well. Um, at least, you know, there are fictional versions of that like in, in the Nolan films or the in the in here uh, or in the David Mitchell book. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that, that's that's one of the big problems, right? The, the, this um, need for the end. And right. Is there a way to to sort of um, have a narrative that does not necessarily have an end that, that loops right. uh, into some other direction? Um, yeah, I mean, that, that that's quite interesting. Um, well, again, in a few minutes, we're going to be ending this conversation, but uh, it, it will not end because, you know, it's going to be published ultimately. It's right. going to be available on this uh, uh, platform. So so maybe that's one way to avoid the end as well. Uh, I do want to ask you just uh, two more questions, maybe. So so one is sort of the, the wider implications of your core argument. So this kind of just extends what we've been just saying a few moments ago. Yeah. So so is, is one of the implications that we should be thinking about narratives, about ways to kind of, again, avoid this end focus, this, this sort of uh, necessity to end things. And, and if that's a way out, I mean, what are some practical ways of doing that, maybe? Yeah, I don't know. Uh, I don't want to put myself in the business of offering practical advice <laughs> to people. Um, but it is the case that, you know, like uh, what I was saying about David Mitchell, um, that's in a whole argument about about narrative. And uh, one of the implications of this, of my argument, has to do with 
um, you know, the very common notion in a lot of disciplines that narrative is absolutely fundamental to, to human thought and life. And, and part of that, of course, is the notion that narratives have a, a, a teleology, they have an end, they have a conclusion, and that really it's somehow morally suspect to do without that. Uh, and one of the things that I talk about in the analysis of David Mitchell's cloud atlas that shows up in this book is the way that Mitchell really seems to be calling on people to be willing to interrupt their narratives uh, and to kind of just take a, a, a sort of a leap into the future you know, without necessarily knowing what's going to happen. Uh, at, the, at the very least, it calls into question the notion that narrative is absolutely necessary to everybody. And I think mm -hmm. that has fairly wide implications because that's a common assumption in a lot of disciplines. Right. So, so in Cloud Atlas, he puts the end of the story uh, in, the in the middle of the book. And so right. then you have to sort of work your way back to the beginning, right? Yeah, and you have, and he interrupts each little subset narrative within the book is interrupted, and you know as as this happens to you, you get very frustrated, and you want to say, okay, I want to know the end, what's going to happen, um, but there's obviously a strategic reason for doing that, and and there does turn out to be a kind of a moral and, and I think ethical argument in the book for a certain sort of, of open-endedness and for a different kind of timeline than the one that ordinary narratives work on. I think the, the similar argument in a lot of, of, of Nolan's movies. Yeah, again, again, you're not in the business of offering sort of practical <laughs> advice, but I, I think I think one could kind of um, pull that out of the book. I think it's really interesting to think about uh, these different uh, uh, structures, what, how one can sort of uh, approach temporality from a, from a new, pr fresh perspective, and that there's all kinds of creative things that one, one could do with that, I think. Um, okay, well, the last thing that I wanted to ask you is uh, sort of your, your current um, or, or future projects, uh, sort of what are you working on now and what can we look forward to reading in the future? Well, what I guess what I've decided to do, I mean, really the, the two books that I've done most recently on novelty and on the present, uh, in a way were justified for me as a modernist scholar because those are sort of basic constituents of modernity. And what I think I want to do now, or what I have been doing a bit, is trying to take those back into a kind of general theoretical uh, discussion of, of what modernism and modernity actually might be. So uh, trying to understand modernism not in terms of not in, not in the empirical way in which a lot of people would do it by taking a lot of modernist works and adding them up and trying to find out what the common constituents are, but trying to look at you know what the what the real building blocks are. I mean, how does novelty, how do, out of the present, maybe other sort of modal building blocks of the modern, how do, how do they work? So I'm basically working on a kind of what you might call non-empirical account of modernism. And one that in weird ways actually starts back with Pliny and comes forward through people like Winkelmann and or actually Vasari in art history and tries to understand, you know, the, the notion of the modern in a very, very broad, large scale historical way. OK, well, perfect. I think this is a good place um, to end. So thank you again uh, for taking the time to talk to us about your work. Appreciate it. Sure. Thanks for asking. All right. Thank you.